We've been journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who has ever lived. And if you have a Bible with you, would you please turn to Matthew chapter 5, where we're going to read from verses 17 to 48. Thank you so much. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 48. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, Until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, That everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. 
Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word, even when they are some of the hardest words of the New Testament. And these words are hard. They get right into the very nitty-gritty of our lives and of our thoughts. And we mustn't allow them to be turned into some kind of spiritual lesson. We must let them stand as they do. Because in this sermon that Jesus preached, in this series of messages pulled together by Matthew, whatever way you look at it, and I look at it in the former way, Jesus Christ plants the idea of moral and ethical goodness, not in an idea, not in a theory, not in a series of concepts, but in everyday life. In your life and in mine, he illustrates in grimy realism what it is like to be a really good person. Not good in our nature, not good at the center of our being, but what it looks like to live a good life. And one of the great challenges for us as Christians is that we have often misunderstood the Sermon on the Mount and we've allowed it to be turned into a series of aphorisms or truisms or ideas or concepts that live out here somewhere and don't touch us. That's not what this sermon is about. Jesus, could somebody just help Alan for me, please, to make sure that he's all right? Uh, one of the guys at the back, maybe if you could just make sure that Alan's okay, I'd be grateful for that. Um, is anybody going to move? One of the fellas, please. Thank you so much. Um, one of the challenges for us is that we just need to make sure that we don't allow the Sermon on the Mount to be turned into some sense of um, timeless truth that lives out there somewhere else. It lives in our hearts, it lives in us, it lives in our daily choices. In one of the greatest books written in the last 20 years, the public theologian Dallas Willard said this about the Sermon on the Mount and specifically about the section that we are going to look at this morning. When Jesus deals with moral goodness and evil, he doesn't begin by theorizing. He plunges immediately in these verses into the guts of human existence, raging anger, contempt, hatred, obsessive lust, divorce, verbal manipulation, revenge, slapping, suing, cursing, coercing, and all of these. And he begins here. This is the stuff of soap operas and family news and real life. I want to unpack for you what these verses mean for us and what they might do to us if we allow them to live in our hearts. This is not going to be a comfortable sermon. I'm letting you know that because I'm preaching the text and I don't want you to fall out with me because the text says something that might be difficult for us to hear. But I ask you to listen to it with open hearts and open ears. We can be very aloof about ideas of holiness and what it is that we're called to be. More than once as a pastor, I have heard men and women in the congregation that I um, lead talk about the lack of holiness in other people and the lack of clarity and the lack of faithfulness in their lives and then pull others apart in the very next sentence. It's as if we've allowed ourselves to live in two spheres as leaders or as Christians or as church members. We have a, a sphere of influence here where we can live how we like, with, it, with whomever we like, doing whatever we like, and it has no bearing on our daily lives. And at the same time, pull apart other people that we don't like. We can talk as if they're almost subhuman. 
We can talk about people that have hurt us, people that have gone away from us, people that have failed, people that have let God down or our families down, almost as if they're, they're dirt on the bottom of our shoe, whilst at the same time talking about ourselves with such grace and mercy and tenderness. And we miss the dichotomy between the two things. And the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in Matthew chapter 25, from verses 20, uh, Matthew 5, verses 21 to 48, Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. He calls us to think through what it means to be God's people where we are in the daily choices that we make and in the priorities that we set. There are those that would read these verses because they're hard and say to you, they point to something that's impossible. They don't point to something that's impossible. They point to a way of life that is possible for the believer. It is the route to that way of life that is so vitally important. Over the years, I've heard people preaching on the Sermon on the Mount many times, and they take a verse here and a verse there and a verse from somewhere else, and they kind of string it together almost like a modern-day book of Proverbs. But this is a message with one clear emphasis, one clear guidance, one clear set of instruction from Jesus Christ, and it's about how to live as people of his kingdom, how to follow him, how to demonstrate his grace and his kingdom values to the world around us. Last week, we looked at what it meant to be salt and light, Salt as a community, light as a community. Here in verses 21 through to 48, Jesus Christ plunges right into concrete examples of what it looks like to be salt and light. He doesn't allow us to have conceptual conversations about it. He plunges his listeners into the reality. If you're going to live as salt and light, then it's going to affect this area and 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 this area of your life. Six areas that are everyday challenges for men and women in Second Temple Judaism when Jesus was physically on earth. And they are the same six areas that still challenge us today. They're areas that we must think about, not just when we are gathered, but when we are living our private, everyday lives that no one else can see. You see, most of the Sermon on the Mount is about personal choices not about large gatherings. Not about what we do when we gather on a Sunday or on a Wednesday or whatever it is you gather if you're a Christian. They're about the choices that you make at work. The choices you make about your partner, the way you're going to speak to your colleague, how you're going to treat a neighbor, what you're going to do when you're hurt, how you recover from a relationship breakdown, what happens when your marriage hits difficulties. The Sermon on the Mount is grounded in real life, personal choices, private decisions that have huge public consequences. But we shouldn't be surprised by that because the New Testament is grounded in those as well. Following on from this, when Jesus, is, when Paul teaches his listeners and readers in Rome how to live, here's what he says in Romans chapter 12, take your everyday life. You're walking around, going to work, staying at home life and submit that to God as an act of worship. Take who you are when nobody's looking and submit it to him. In something called the household codes, both Paul and Peter explain that being a Christian works out at home. It works out in relationships at work. It works out with neighbors. It works out with difficulties and challenges. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Listen to Paul to the Philippians in chapter 2 from verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. This is a whole church with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and serving coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I want to 
demolish a couple of wrong understandings about Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, and hopefully help you to grapple with this text meaningfully in your own life. And the first misunderstanding I hope I've already addressed, and that is that this is about concepts and not about real life. This is about real life choices. I'll explain those choices in a moment. The second, which is often used by people who are misunderstanding or misteaching the New Testament, in the last 10 or 20 years, I've seen this growing in the church in Europe exponentially, is that somehow the God that Jesus represents is different from the God of the Old Testament and that the Sermon on the Mount is an example of that. Because six times you hear Jesus say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And they point to that and say, that shows that the God in the Old Testament and the God in the New Testament are entirely different. It shows exactly the opposite, folks. Exactly the opposite. And there are a number of reasons why it does so. Here's the first. If you read verses 17 to 20 of Matthew chapter 5, which we began our reading with, you hear Jesus Christ saying this, do not think that I have come to abolish or do away with the law. I have not come to do that. I have come to fulfill it. He says every I and T in English equivalence. He says in Hebrew or in Aramaic, every, every jot and tittle will be marked of the law. The equivalent, the jot and a tittle are, are two grammatical marks, like a dot above an I or a, the little line across a small T. So Jesus, before he says these six things, says to them, every I of the law will be dotted and every T will be crossed. So whatever he is saying here, he is not saying that the law doesn't matter. He is saying that it matters so fully and completely that he has come to fulfill it. Don't miss that. Don't allow it to slip by you to try and turn this into a set of ideas that you can ignore. He's saying something so important, not just about the law, but about God. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are exactly the same God. The characters in the Old Testament that were redeemed were redeemed by grace through faith, just as the characters in the New Testament were redeemed by grace through faith. The people in the Old Testament, like Abraham, who is used by Paul and by Jesus and by Peter as examples of believers, were not redeemed because of obedience. They were redeemed by faith through grace. Obedience flowed out of their lives. It wasn't what caused them to be acceptable to God. It's exactly the same principle in the New Testament. Don't allow these two things to get pulled apart because if you do, you end up with an angry Old Testament God and a nice New Testament God. And it's not long from there before you think, well, actually, the, Old, the New Testament isn't entirely nice. After all, in Acts chapter 5, post-resurrection, post the day of Pentecost, God killed two people called Ananias and Sapphira for lying. So let's take that out of the Bible too, because that offends us. Let's take Jesus' challenging words to religious hypocrites out. They offend us. Let's take Paul's hard words about sexual faithfulness out. They offend us. Let's take the teaching out about money. That offends us. Let's take the teaching out about the church being a light in the world. That offends us. Let's just keep the things we like. And we end up a little bit like a man called Marcion, who in the halfway through the first, second century AD didn't like nearly everything else and chopped it out and ended up with a pamphlet. He said, this is the God we serve, who looked remarkably like a nice second century Roman God. You might think that that's too heavy of me, that it's too severe. If you end up making a, a space or a dichotomy between the God who created us and the God who redeems us, you will end up in a rabbit warren of confusion that will draw you in a hundred separate directions. Jesus doesn't let us. That's the first thing that he says to us. This passage, whatever it teaches us, teaches us that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Now I need to explain what that means. Some people will say, well, the law doesn't apply to me anymore because I'm a Christian. I can set it to one side. That's not what he meant. The word that is used for law 
in Matthew chapter 5 is actually the word Torah. And the Torah is not just what's written on the page. The Torah is a way of life. It's a way of seeing and understanding the world and your place in it. It's an inner power that has the, the, the power to bring about transformation and change in our lives. And Jesus says something which is remarkable. He says, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. The better word. A word that sounds very similar to the word that is used in verse 48 of Matthew chapter 5. Which is used in chapter 20, verse 20 of chapter 5. Like two bookends of this argument. Is I have come to complete it. Every demand of God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Every expectation, every ceremonial expectation, every moral expectation, every communal expectation, every personal expectation, every sacrificial ritual, it's called the cultus, every requirement that would make him holy and pure if he were to walk into the temple, it's all being fulfilled. It's all being completed by Jesus. It's why Peter later on described him as a perfect, blemishless lamb. He has completed and fulfilled every expectation of the law. Now here's the thing, not so that you can forget about it, but so that we as Christians can find our life and our grace and our strength and our hope in him. So many Christians today have been saved by grace and live by law. I was converted by grace and now I have to earn God's continued favor. It's not true. And that is what Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 48 is about. That's the first thing about the law, grace, um, dichotomy. The second thing is this. Six times in these verses, you will hear Jesus say something like this. He says, you have heard it said. I'll come back to that phrase in a moment. But I say to you. Now, those of you that were here a couple of weeks ago will have heard me touch on this very briefly. That's a really important set of phrases. They are um, couplets. The six of them go together. And this is why it's important. If you were a good rabbi in Jewish thinking, you would quote Moses, and then you would quote another rabbi, and 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 then you quote yourself and prove that you deserve to be heard because you were a faithful rabbi. And this is what you would say, you have heard it said. And Rabbi Ben Joseph said, and Rabbi Ben Ami said, and Rabbi Ben Hillel said, particularly at this time, and Rabbi Ben Shammai said. And you would quote all of them, and then you'd say, and I say to you. And those listening would say, okay, this is a good rabbi. He knows his scriptures. He's quoted from Moses all the way down, and he's put himself in that tradition. Did you note what Jesus does six times here? You have heard it said. Then he doesn't quote anybody else. And then he says, but, not and, but I say to you. Why does that matter? Because each time he goes beyond the common understanding of Moses. He takes them further than they have ever heard anybody take them. And he says something about himself, which is so life-giving to us that if we would allow it to sit in our hearts, it would inspire us and transform us. He says, I am the fulfillment of all that Moses taught. I am greater than Moses. There was nobody in Jewish tradition greater than Moses. He is the great prophet. When Jesus was um, transfigured, he wasn't just a lawgiver, by the way. The Bible describes him as the great prophet. When Jesus was transfigured, when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, do you remember that, Campbell? And he was seen by two people, one on either side. Who were those two people? You can answer me, I don't bite. Moses and Elijah. The two greatest figures in Jewish history apart from Abraham. The great lawgiver, the great prophet, the great leaders were standing on either side of Jesus. And if you read Luke's version of the story of the transfiguration, we're told in more detail what was going on in that moment. 
We're told that they were talking to Jesus about his departure. The, Greek, the Hebrew word, the Greek word that is used there is they were, they were talking to Jesus about his exodus. Have you heard that word anywhere else? There's a whole book in the Bible called Exodus. Jesus positions himself as the new Moses. The Hebrew writer, the writer of the book of Hebrews, says that he is greater than Moses. And here, Jesus says, I am greater than Moses. I am the fulfillment of the law. He stands in front of a group of bedraggled first century poor followers who have been laughed at, rejected, and mocked by the religious establishment. And he pulls the religious establishment apart. And he says, I am the source of real life. I am the source of real hope. And I am the source of real grace. If you want to know how to live, it's in me. And before he can allow them to drift off into some kind of charismatic jacuzzi, he plants what that looks like in the everyday choices of their lives. And I am the Lord of how you speak. And I am the Lord of your lust. And I'm the Lord of your reactions. And I'm the Lord of your temper. And I'm the Lord of your anger. And I'm the Lord of your resentment. And I'm the Lord of how you respond to enemies. He grounds it in real life. Far too much modern day spirituality is airy-fairy and not connected with real life. Jesus Christ grounds who he is and who we can be in real life. I am the Lord of your life when you are brokenhearted. I'm the Lord of your life when you're rejected. I'm the Lord of your life when you are meek. I'm the Lord of your life when you are ridiculed and laughed at. He's gone through it. He goes previously in the Beatitudes at the beginning of this sermon. Imagine the power of it. Jesus standing in front of a bunch of people and saying, not only am I the fulfillment of the law, not only am I better than the lawgiver, not only am I the one that can help you understand it, I'm the one that gives you grace to live it. And here's the next thing. The common misperception or conception. We're saved by grace. Hallelujah. That means we can do what we like. No, it doesn't. Six times. Six times. Jesus compares his teaching to what they commonly understood Moses to have said. And six times... Grace raises the bar, it doesn't lower it. Grace at work in your life somehow has to be able to make you live better. It is not a tool for permission to live any way you like. Grace raises our sexual ethic, it doesn't lower it. Grace raises our commitment to our family. It doesn't lower it. Grace changes the way we use words. Grace impacts our temper. Grace deals with our lust. Grace handles our thinking. Grace challenges the way we do disagreement. Grace handles and transforms the way we handle our enemies. So on every level, Jesus is saying something about grace and life, but he's saying something that is hard to hear unless you get this thing into your head. That little phrase, I go back to it again. You have heard it said, erethe in Greek. It's not as important as kebab as I said last week, but it's still a nice word. Six times he uses it. Now here is where you have to do a little bit of exegetical understanding with me. And I'm sorry that that's a big word. There are two phrases that are in this passage that are really important to understand what it all means. The first is when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The second is that little repeated phrase, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, repeated six times. These two things are important because here's what Jesus is challenging. He's not challenging Moses. The little phrase, Erethe, you have heard it said, is an, an idiom. It's a, it's a kind of colloquialism which is a a statement that any Jewish person hearing would understand this is the modern interpretation of Moses. Six times Jesus says, your culture tells you Moses says this. I'm telling you Moses says that. 
And the leaders, the, Jew, the religious leaders of the Jews were the scribes and the Pharisees. Very easy way to remember them. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were very sad, you see, because they did not believe in any form of afterlife. Whereas the Pharisees believed in some kind of afterlife. But they both put more and more rules and regulations and stipulations and petty expectations on the Jewish people. Out of a fear of disobeying the Torah, they added more and more rules and more and more regulations until by the time Jesus is alive, following the Torah is almost impossible because they've layered so many expectations on these people that everything they do is wrong. The Pharisees and Sadducees looked down their religious noses at the ordinary people and said, you're not good enough for God. They had a whole framework of life that was worked out For example, about the Sabbath. Jesus uh, mentions the Sabbath. He always obeys the Sabbath. He never breaks the Sabbath teaching of Moses, despite what some people might tell you. But when you read the New Testament teaching on Sabbath and the Old Testament teaching on Sabbath, you realize something's going on. The scribes and Pharisees had become so obsessed about breaking the Sabbath that they had a list of regulations of what you were allowed to and not allowed to do. So if a wall fell on a man... You could move the bricks to see if he was alive, but you couldn't help him beyond that. If you moved the bricks, then you were not breaking the Sabbath. Deeds of necessity and mercy. If he was alive, you had to leave him until the following day before you could help him. A chicken could lay an egg, but you couldn't pick it up. If you picked it up, you were breaking the Sabbath. If you spat on the ground and someone touched it, they were making a brick and you were breaking the Sabbath. Which is why Jesus on at least one occasion spat on the ground on the Sabbath and picked it up. Because he was saying, your rules and regulations are killing these people. And they've got nothing to do with Moses. Suddenly you begin to see a chink of light, don't you? Maybe the Sermon on the Mount is about lifting all those religious expectations that are placed on people so that they can actually see a way through. You know the folk I'm talking about. The folk that if you said to them in modern day Northern Ireland, come to church and say, oh, I couldn't come, I'm not good enough. They'll all look down their noses at me. Why? Because I'm divorced. Why? Because I had a row with somebody once. Why? Because I have terrible thoughts. And suddenly, what's going on here has power. That whole worldview, that whole way of looking at things that was religious and legalistic and judgmental and narrow-minded had a phrase, it had a title in Second Temple Judaism. Guess what it was called? You're all either don't care or hanging on every word. It was called the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now go back and read Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Jesus says to them, not that Moses doesn't matter. He looks them in the eye and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds this petty legalism, this narrow-minded judgmentalism that disregards everybody, unless you are holier than that, you're never going to get into the kingdom of God. And suddenly, if you're a normal human being like me, something inside of you breathes out and you say, is it possible that there could be life here for me? That there's a way through, a different way of living. And that's exactly the point that he makes. And then he does it across the following areas. In verses 17 to 21, he tells us that we can have grace to grow and change and blossom. He tells us in verses 21 to 26 that we can have grace to change hate. In verses 27 to 32, he tells us that we can have grace to have control of our bodies and to live purely and holy. In verses 33 to 37, he helps us understand that we can have grace to speak with better words and behave in a better way. In verses 38 to 42, he tells us that we can have grace to respond more deeply when we are wronged. And in verses 43 to 48, he tells us that when our enemies come against us, we can have grace to live differently. Look at me for a minute. Here is what he is saying. What the Pharisees are trying to get you to do is live on a superficial level. I've obeyed this, therefore I'm good. 
I've behaved, therefore I'm good. And here's what Jesus says, kingdom living doesn't come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. And the Pharisees might look at you and say, well, you haven't killed him. But I can look at you and say, but you've killed him in your heart. And grace has the power to transform a hateful heart. You could say, well, I've never said anything. God says, but I know what you felt. And grace has the power to transform the deepest levels of us so that we can live better. How many people are in this meeting or listening online to this teaching and you pride yourself on never having done this, 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 or this? At least I'm not divorced. At least I'm not hateful. At least I haven't killed anybody. You even hear people saying it when you talk to them about becoming a Christian. Well, I haven't killed anybody. I've never been in jail. I don't have a criminal record. You're misunderstanding it. God says, look deeper and see in yourself a broken heart that needs mended, an attitude that is warped and selfish. And then hear Jesus say, I have the grace to change that. I have the grace to give you something to live for, to give you hope, to help you see the world differently. Christ's grace in us changes us at the deepest level. Now, if you are listening to me carefully, and I know you are, then you will already be saying, if you're being really honest, grace hasn't worked like that in my life yet. That's because we're all still works in progress. If we're going to be really honest, including me, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, it never leads to spiritual pride. It leads to humility. And we begin to realize, actually, the grace of God needs to do a deeper work in me. It needs to change my attitude. It needs to change my heart. Never mind everybody else's. I've always found it intriguing. Do not shoot me for what I'm about to say. But the Christian church is so quick to talk about homosexuality. At least we're not like them. I wonder if sometimes that is a diversion technique. We'd rather talk about them because we don't want to talk about the sin in us. The brokenness in us that needs to get sorted out. We can point at everybody else. Our family's not like that. My son's not like that. My daughter's not like that. I'm not suggesting for a moment that I have a liberal view of sexuality. I don't. But instead of pointing at everybody else, what God teaches us to do through Christ is look at our own hearts and allow ourselves to be changed and transformed by God's grace. I think it's a remarkable thing. The word that is used for righteousness as I draw all this to a close is a Greek word, dikaiosune. And actually, righteousness is in this context is not the most helpful way of translating it. It's rooted in another Hebrew set of phrases and Greek phrases, and it means what it means to live really well. Jesus Christ has a plan for what it looks like to live really well. We shouldn't be surprised at that, although we often are. In a recent survey, a series of Christian students were asked, who's the most intelligent person you've ever heard of? 4,000 of them were asked. Not one of them said Jesus. Because we've allowed spirituality to exist here and intelligent design around living to exist here. Jesus was the greatest philosopher the world has ever seen. He was the greatest ethicist that we will ever encounter. He was the most advanced mind that humanity has ever had. His arguments were the most cogent. His reasons and his discussions and his debates and his logic surpassed Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. He's better than Hegel. He's better than everyone else. His argument around life holds together. So it would be really weird if this person wasn't able to show us how to live well, don't you think? And in the Sermon on the Mount, he shows us how to live well. 
What God does in us when we have a kingdom understanding is take us beyond just externals and helps us to understand that irritation, that, 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 that can evidence itself in murder can be dealt with at the deepest level so that we don't even want to hate someone. That sexual attraction that can look like adultery can be dealt with so that we don't even want to lust after someone. That divorce that has blighted people and was used so badly to thwart and, 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 and annihilate the characters of men and women down through the church's history in the evangelical church has a completely different understanding in first and second temple Judaism. And understanding what it means about divorce here is so profound and important that all I can say to you at the moment is Jewish understanding does not prohibit divorce. At some point I'll teach it more fully for you. Jesus doesn't hate divorcees. His father was one. Leave you to think about that for a minute. God the Father divorced Israel and then remarried them. Jesus doesn't condemn divorcees. He invites them into life and hope and a deeper meaning and a deeper purpose. Word to God that his church would do the same. He says, instead of using words to manipulate and control and vows and oaths, when you follow me, just be honest. You don't need to control and manipulate people with your words. When you are personally injured, you don't have to give back what you've got. You can forgive. I'm going to talk about that tonight. When you have an enemy, it isn't automatic that you have to hate them the way the Moses teaching is understood today. Instead, you can bless them and love them and there's a way through. These six areas, irritation with others, sexual attraction, unhappiness with your spouse, wanting someone to believe something that you've said, how you handle personal injury, having an enemy. These are the things of communal life today still. And the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees held people in a cell that said, if you are hated, you have to hit back. If you are injured, you have to hit back. If you are wronged, you have to wrong back. That's what this world is like, tit for tat. And Jesus says, that's not true. You can go further and deeper than that. There's a power to live in a different way. How many of us don't want that? If we could have it in our hearts, in our families, what would have changed? If Northern Ireland had been governed by this sermon, how many lives would have been saved across the last 40 years? Can you even begin to imagine the power of this teaching? And he says it all starts with grace and with mercy. Let me give you an example of it. Rooted here that applies here. Um, Come and let me borrow you, Campbell, for a second. You're going to get to do something that you've never got a chance to do in your life before. Right. In this passage, one of the things that Jesus talks about is what to do when somebody hits you. <laughs> 48 years and now's the moment, Campbell. <laughs> slap me. Oh, that wasn't a slap. <laughs> slap me. That was your own hand. Eeps. Now, I want you to see, you could have slapped me as hard as you want. I might not have slapped you back, particularly if I'm reading today. Imagine for a moment what Jesus is teaching about slapping. I want you to see this. I'm not going to hit you. He says, um, if somebody slaps you, whack! Look at my hand for a moment. What hand is that? My right hand. I'm hitting your left side. So what I do if I use my right hand to hit your left side... In Roman and Jewish culture, as I say to you, you are less than me. That's the message that you sent. If I use my left hand to hit your uh, right hand, it's even worse. And that's the way the slap in this passage is described. It is a left hand slap on a right hand face. In Jewish tradition and Roman tradition, your left side is your less side, and your right side is your good side. Even the words for good and bad, sinister, is from the Latin word left. That's why people that were left-handed were treated so badly and taught to write with their right hand because rooted in it was a concept that if you were left-handed, you were evil. Here's what they were taught. Here's what they were taught. If somebody wrongs you in Roman authorities, if they slap you, when a Roman soldier slaps you, and remember they were an oppressed community, he's using his lesser hand 
that your best side. Right? So he's saying, I am doubly better than you. Jesus says, offer them the other cheek. Now offer me your other cheek. How do I hit him with my left hand on his left side? I can't. So in that act, not only is that about grace, that's a declaration of equality. If you're going to hit me, you have to hit me with the back of your hand on my left side and immediately we are equal. Immediately we're equal. Thank you, Campbell. The other thing that he says is if somebody demands of you a cloak, don't just give them a cloak, give them, a, give them two. If they demand that you carry something for a mile, don't do it for a mile, do it for two. Why? Allow this to sink in. It is remarkable. Because Roman authorities in occupied territories could force somebody to carry, them, carry their pack for one mile. Not one mile and one foot, one mile. And when Jesus said, if they tell you you have to carry it for a mile, carry it for two. In other words, do the mile and then say, but I am your equal. You are not going to oppress me. I'll carry it for another mile. They could demand one cloak. They couldn't demand two. So when they say, give me your coat, we say, take the coat and have my second one because I am your equal. In Christian culture, when the culture tells us we are not this, we're not that, we're less than them, we're something underneath them, we're the dirt in their shoe, we don't fight back. We stand with dignity and grace and truth and we look them in the eye and we say, we can do that and we can do more because we are your equal. You're not better than us. You're not more important than us. You're not more holy than us. Can you see the life that springs from this passage all of a sudden? It's not about a list of rules and regulations. It's not a test that you pass to prove that you're in. It's a way into living that brings freedom and life. Change on the inside with the deepest, darkest, most strongly held fears, anxieties, resentment, pain, loss, sadness, bitterness. It's dealing with that. Now think for one minute what would have happened if the Christian church in this nation had behaved like that? Instead of waving our rights and demanding our equality and speaking down at everybody else, telling people that come from a different tradition that they're less than us, what would have happened if we had lived like this? What would happen in your family, in your marriages, in your community, in your workplace? Instead of demanding, demanding, and demanding, we allow God's grace to fill us. I wish I could say I've lived like this. I've looked back over my life, and I've been a Christian 32 years, and I say to God, I'm sorry that I haven't done this. I'm sorry I've held on to bitternesses too long. I'm sorry I've allowed people to hurt me and I've held it. I'm sorry that I've treated people as less than me. I'm sorry that this sermon which brings life and hope and possibility has been ignored so that I could hold on to my heart. What might happen in your heart and life today if you allowed yourself to be complete? Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Actually, be complete. Be fully formed. It's the same phrase that is used in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. It's a bookend on either side that says, if you want to live free, live in grace. Grace for you and grace through you. If you want to deal with the deepest aspects of your character live in grace if you want to see Dundonald or Greater Belfast or Northern Ireland or the Republic of Ireland changed then live in grace and it starts with your children with your friends with your church with your words and your attitudes and your family 
and it can start today. Let's pray. Come by the power of your Holy Spirit. Change our hearts. Thank you for the life that Jesus Christ promises. We are sorry for the ways in which we don't live it. We're sorry for the times we've hurt our children, our friends, our family, our churches, our marriages. We want to be like this. So let Jesus Christ's grace and mercy flood our souls. Show us what we can do about this today. The people we have to say sorry to the hurts we have to release, the anger that we have to give to you. And let us be different. In Jesus' name.